You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Amba Gergarian here with John Tarleton. Later in the show, we will be talking with the Ukrainian-American who has a beautiful first-person piece up on independent.org about coming of age in her diasporic community. But now we turn to the raging controversy around critical race theory and how the left should engage with it. In her latest article for The Independent, titled Time for the Left to Embrace Critical Race Theory Debate, Linda Marketine Alkoff says that pretending CRT isn't real robs us of the chance to amount a strong defense to it. Martine Alkoff is professor of philosophy at the City University of New York and the author of numerous books, including The Future of Whiteness and Rape and Resistance. Linda, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Absolutely. So in your article, you write that principal defense of critical race theory supporters against right wing attacks has been to claim that its opponents are simply ignorant. They don't know what critical race theory is or that it is only taught in law schools. You argue that this approach is misleading and that the left should instead embrace the CRT debate as an opportunity. Why do you believe that? And also, can you explain what critical race theory originally referred to and what it has come to mean in today's public discourse? It's a lot. Right. Well, you know, I think the the claim that that critical race theory is um, misunderstood by these opponents who are filling uh, parent-teacher organization meetings and school board councils um, I, I think that claim just shows the ignorance, really, of the elites um, that don't understand what what um, the opponents are really saying. I think the opponents are quite clear and correct that what's going on is a huge shift in educational curriculum at every level in our society to bring the difficult and painful aspects of U.S. history to the fore for the, you know, first time really um, beginning to bring them to the fore. And it's going to change um, the next generation because in the, this, if the, the younger generation learns this history from an early age, they can't think the same way about the United States or the mythic representations of us always being on the right side of history or as being fundamentally democratic and egalitarian with just a little bit of deviations over here. So, um, you know, I, I really think uh, we need to uh, we need to listen to what the opponents are saying and read what they're saying. And it's clear that they know what they're talking about. Now, it is true that critical race theory is often used as a specialized term to refer to kind of a grab bag of different approaches in the academy, mostly in starting in law schools, inspired by the legal theorist Derek Bell. But the, you know, the general approach of critical race theory reached well beyond the law schools. The, the theory, what hangs together, what, what um, causes this grouping to hang together is the motivation to think past civil rights era, uh, you know, legal thinking and reform thinking. A lot of the reforms that were fought for and people died for and went to jail for in the civil rights movement 
where one, we got equal employment opportunity commission. We got a lot of uh, voting rights legislation. And then, you know, poverty continued racial mass car. Uh, carceral system grew greater than ever. The police abuse and violence um, increased. Um, so the question was, you know, starting really by the by the early 1980s, what are we doing wrong in our reform movements? And it wasn't just what we professors are doing wrong, but really, how does the whole anti-racist movement need to take a step back? and look at our language and our ideas, and then take a step forward to the next stage so that we can actually make some real progress. So critical race theory, that, that's what critical race theory is. And it's, um, you know, a, an argument, um, and critical race theorists disagree about this, but it's an argument about how to move forward, and it focuses a lot on um, policies and languages that involve neutrality, and universality and equality that look to be non-racist, look to be fair to everybody. And when you look at the effects of the policies and the um, the actual outcomes of institutions that pursue these policies, you see that there is uh, tremendously different effects, especially for African Americans, Latinx folks, Native American folks. So, um, looking at the effects is a sign that we need to look back at the language and the policies that produced these effects and see how they might need to be changed. And we disagree on that sometimes, but that's the basic project. So really the project of critical race theory is to figure out how to take anti-racism to the next level in this country. And that's what these people do not want to have happen. When you say these people, you're referring to the right wing. Yeah, the the opponents of critical race theory, but it's a pretty popular mass base. So I wouldn't... Yeah. That everybody's consolidated around a particular political ideology. I think some of them have been, um, you know, uh, more motivated by um, a ver- you know variety of different concerns, con- right. including and, parents' rights. And what would a, a grassroots movement to defend and advance an anti-racist, social justice-friendly uh, curriculum look like? Uh, right now, all of the energy. Uh, at the school board level and the local level these days is coming uh, from the, from the critics. Yeah. And we, we really are losing an opportunity here, I think, because they're, they've provided an opening for us to contest their interpretation of what the effects of this new curriculum is going to be on their children, on our children, on all of our children, um, and and we should take advantage of that. And it needs to be um, rural. It needs to be decentralized. It needs to be all over the country and wherever there you hear of a school board or or a meeting that's um, uh, engaging in this activity. What I said in the article is the more hardy of us should go and uh, participate in the discussion and. Um, raise questions about what are what are the likely effects of for white children 
when they are not told the truth and, you know, raise questions about non-white children as well. What are the effects on non-white children when their history is treated as, um, you know, a sideline, uh, a, a footnote, a something that may get some attention and, and, but can be also set aside if it harms the psychological or causes psychological distress to white children. What does that tell non-white children? So I think the language of, of parents' rights, you know, has been a pretty brilliant maneuver on the part of the right as a kind of mechanism to thwart social change. And it's being used in the, in the trans fight as your last um, conversation just talked about, it's being used there as well. But, but, you know, I think we can say two things about that. One is that, that parents, there's all kinds of parents in this country, not just white parents and all kinds of kids, but also, you know, families, what parents rights is doing is it's, it's presenting families as this, um, the sacrosanct location in which children are cared for and families as havens of care. And the fact is that families are not always havens for children. They are places where uh, we have an epidemic of incest. We have an epidemic of domestic violence and child abuse And so families need to be engaged with the public. They need to be part of the society. It's not that they need to be, you know, have oversight by the social workers, but they need to be in conversation with other institutions in the society because children are not safe. Um, Women are not safe. A lot of people are not safe. Trans kids, um, gay kids are not safe in families. So I think we can, we can, um, uh, unite with the desire for safe havens for children and use that precisely to argue for, um, an expansion of our understanding of children's sexualities, an expansion of our understanding of, of the harms of racism on all of us. And, and a way to think about a different future. And in your article, you note that our nation's history isn't solely one of horrible crimes and injustices, but there are also moving stories of resistance that can plant seeds of hope that are often forgotten. What are some of your favorite examples of resistance that you draw inspiration from? And we have uh, just a minute here on this one. Yes, there are lots of positive examples in U.S. history. You know, people are making lists of of monuments they'd like to see as we take some down and replace them. I mean, Mother Jones leading a, you know, a march of children to uh, fight for workers' rights, right? That's care for the children because children are affected by by poverty and, and unemployment. So, uh, we need to rescue people like Mother Jones, like Ann Braden, um, like the many white anti-racist fighters um, who sacrificed and risked their lives, in some cases lost their lives, as well as the many people of color who took enormous risks to try to make this country live up to its claim to be a democracy.
And, and real quick, uh, before we go, uh, it, uh, today is the first day of uh, Women's History Month. And, and, and your thoughts on the celebration of Women's History Month, both the, the opportunity to celebrate all the historical accomplishments and contributions women have made, and is, is it also something that is uh, vulnerable perhaps to being co-opted by, uh, you know, corporate ad campaigns and, you know, other things like that. I guess that's sort of the tension there. Yes. Every social movement, you know, gets co-opted and recuperated. DEI, we, we call it very derogatively in my neck of the world, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, the corporate, uh, ca- the woke capitalists. Um, and, this is not news in feminism. Um, I think feminism has been riven by, um, by um, divisions, political divisions, sharp political divisions. I talk about corporate feminists and imperial feminists um, who've been around, you know, forever. And I think that that's a better way to use the term than, than white feminists, because I think when you, when you throw Medea Benjamin from Code Pink and Hillary Clinton in the same uh, category, you don't get much, you know, understanding of what's going on. Hillary Clinton is an imperial feminist. I heard her last night talking about the rule of law and freedom in reference to the Ukraine-Russia struggle, as if the United States ever respected the rule of law or promoted freedom in the world. So, and I, I think it's, So I think Women's History Month is still necessary. It is still going to be a site in which feminists um, uh, fight with each other over, uh, you know, the the little attention that we get from the media and who's going to get the attention are the corporate feminists or the imperial feminists or the or the more radical and socialist and anti-racist Latina feminists and black feminists going to get media attention as well. Um, so it's, it's, I don't think we're at the point yet where we can let these things go entirely because, uh, there's still, you know, so much sexism in the media, in educational institutions, in corporations, in Hollywood, that, that Women's History Month gives us a a venue to fight in. And sometimes we're going to be fighting with each other, but that too is part of of how social movements grow and uh, explain uh, different versions of different futures that we're fighting for. Right. Well, I agree. And we're going to have to leave it there. Linda Martine Alcoff, professor of philosophy at the City University of New York and the author of numerous books, including The Future of Whiteness and Rape and Resistance. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI. Thanks so much.